This is a test. Hey, we have a new transmitter, so no more of the flaky stuff that was going on before. We're just cutting in and out. I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We're going to be reading through verse 20. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. We will not get that far in the message, but it's going to be a good context for us. And I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares. And in list, I'm sorry, I started in the wrong place. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. And so spoke their great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania, into the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up! Straight on your feet! And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men! Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and intended, intended to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely refrain, restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Well, this morning, I have a third of a sermon left over from last week. Another sermon for this week, and maybe a third of next week's sermon, all to get in tonight, this morning. And I know it's not going to happen, but uh, wishful thinking. We want to press on our narrative, and narratives can go pretty quickly um, in terms of of, uh, exegetical verse-by-verse messages. 
Uh, and I think sometimes when we do that, we can glide by some very important matters. And uh, I certainly don't want to do that. And so I want to take a little bit of time to build upon our work last week in Acts chapter 13 to really look at our response to the division that the message of Christ creates among men. We looked at the specifics of those, that division and contrasted those two groups of people and how they'll respond to that message, those who choose to reject it. And we looked at them as being full of envy, blaspheme, contradiction, opposition, judging themselves unworthy, uh, really uh, counting as little worth eternal life, stirring up others to be opposed, and then expelling those messengers of hope. And we contrasted that to believers, those who received this message of Christ, and we saw that Instead of envy, there was gladness. Instead of blasphemy and contradiction, there was glorification of God. Instead of being opposed to them, they trusted in them. Instead of counting a small thing, eternal life, they were bent towards it. They were seeking after it. And instead of stirring up opposition, they spread the word of hope. And instead of being full of despair, they were filled with joy. We saw this contrast that Luke has very carefully laid out before Theophilus and shown that this is going to be the case in community after community, so it is no surprise when we come into chapter 14 that we see much the same recurring. First in Iconium, then Lystra, and while we have very little information of Derby, uh, they are very close in uh, in proximity to one another, uh, and so we um, can make some uh, observations uh, true of them as well. But we find that um, Paul and Barnabas' response is where we want to study this morning. Uh, when you have a message that divides a community as clearly, as distinctly, and as uh, powerfully as this message does, uh, it demands something of the messenger and demands some preparation. And I believe God had, had especially prepared Paul and Bar- Barnabas for that task and for that response. Uh, and again, the challenge is, first of all, left over from last week, are we creating that kind of a line? Not in the sand, but in the concrete of our lives. Are we creating that obvious distinction between us and the world? Are we confronting them with a message that demonstrates that this is a radical transformation of a life from being one of this world to being one of another, of going from citizenship in the ways and mores and values of this society to becoming citizens of a heavenly realm, of, a, of another country, that we are, in fact, uh, no longer who we were. But that we have been made new. We have been reborn. As Christ coined the phrase in John. That this is, should be evident in our lives as well as in our message. And it should set people on edge. 
either on edge to realize the necessity that they need to uh, acquire that which they see in your life and hear from your lips or set them on edge that it makes them uncomfortable and even sometimes angry to observe and hear that truth from God. So this is our first area of conviction is that if our lives do not evidence that, if our lives do not uh, press that line, the men are allowed to shuffle back and forth across it almost unaware of its existence, then what have we done to the message of Christ? So we are called to a message that is divisive. What do we do now? And we want to study that here in Acts 14. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, for your spirit within us, to direct us in its study. And Lord, our prayers that you might uh, work in us through your word, by your spirit, to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, more and more. And Lord, to rebuke us, instruct us, teach us, and correct us. So Lord, we submit ourselves freely to your work. And bow ourselves before you. Spirits, we might lay prostrate prostrate there that we might have your hand upon us that our wills are surrendered to yours. That we might minister your gospel one to another and to a lost world. That may believe that they do not want to hear it, and yet it is their only hope. Lord, give us that courage and insight to apply the principles that you have demonstrated here through these servants of yours so many years ago into our lives and our ministries. And we pray your help in this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to Iconium. They are kind of looping back uh, towards the east. They have, uh, in their little journey, they have made the loop out um, into Barnabas' home island. They have headed north into uh, Asia Minor, Galatia, a region, and they are now working their way, really, it seems, almost on a straight trajectory back to Tarsus, where Paul is from. And we kind of think they have it in their mind to head back to his home, just as they visited Barnabas' home at the front end of the journey. Uh, yeah, something's going to turn them at Derby and head back and, and double up on them. We're going to see that more next week. But we find that as they reach Iconium, um, they... Come again, as their pattern is, we see in verse 1, they have the pattern of going to the synagogue of the Jews. They speak on a Sabbath, apparently, and they're gathered together. And we have a large number of Jews that receive that message. And again, we don't want to lose track of that, that this is their Messiah. This is their uh, uh, chosen one, the, the, the branch of Jesse, the, the, the root of David. This is... This is the one that was prophesied to them. And so Paul and Barnabas are going to uh, certainly go with that message to them. They have the credentials there we've talked about for several weeks. 
and we find a large number, it says, of uh, uh, Jews and Greeks that believed. And so we have, again, this conflict. We have now a great multitude of believers uh, in a setting which, in which not everyone did believe. That while we look at, yes, a great number did believe, but we also recognize immediately that there was a certainly an equal or maybe even larger number who had not believed. And now we have within a single synagogue really two different identifiable peoples. One who have acknowledged Christ Jesus as their Messiah, their Deliverer, their Savior, and the other side who have flatly rejected Him and have taken the role um, and if you want to see that conflict played out, maybe uh, taking that role of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in response to Jesus Christ. That as he led multitudes who followed after him, and we can question motives there all we want, but, but many, many, many believed and followed him, even as they believed and followed after John the Baptist and preparing themselves for the reception of the Messiah, we find that that, did not sway the leadership. That even though Christ confounded them over and over again, in, uh, even as a boy of 12 years old, um, and, and then into his adulthood, certainly into his ministry, uh, that, he, that they could not resist the training. They could not resist the teaching. They could not resist uh, the arguments, the, 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 the handling of God's word. They couldn't answer that. They were like, what can we do about this? They couldn't. And yet, even in that condition, they did not respond to God. And there's a group of study um, that's called apologetics. And it's a very necessary study. Um, but on its own, uh, you cannot rely upon it to bring others to Christ. Um, you can certainly use it for those who are searching, for those who are already willing and interested and, and ready to receive that kind of a message. But uh, by and large, what it often does is simply uh, create the line that we want to see. They, it, it distinguishes very quickly between those who are genuine and are interested in the truth and those who are hardened in their hearts against God. And uh, we have groups out there... Um, one that comes to mind very quickly is Answers in Genesis that is pressing uh, in our society the, the Genesis account and, and uh, the creation story. That this is a young earth and uh, this creation model that they are doing through the Creation Museum and, and, and uh, the Noah's Ark endeavor that they're engaged in. And, and really not just in our country, but internationally, uh, this ministry is pressing this issue Interestingly enough, the place that they're pressing it is not so much in society as it is in our churches. Because our churches are needing that. Because it is in the church that God's word was compromised because we were willing to listen to scientists before we were willing to listen to God. And we started compromising God's message to conform it to the, to the interpretations of evidence that were given by scientists. And so we... Uh, have apologetics out there, but apologetics, I am convinced, are most effective within the church, within those who give you God's word, who grant you some 
measure of that, but are not walking in accordance with it. And certainly as Paul and Barnabas walk into those environments, they are going to uh, confront people who want to know the truth. And they're taking God's word, they're opening it, and they're going to defend that faith. And we're going to see that borne out a lot more uh, later on in the next week or two. Um, but we find that apologetics really isn't sufficient to draw men to repentance. The Bible talks not about a cognitive, a thinking change, but a heart change. And that's why we are told in the Bible that it is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It is not uh, critical thinking skills. It's not logical arguments. It is godly sorrow. It is the intense uh, weight of recognizing that I'm a sinner and that I have offended God and that because of that I am under his judgment and rightly so and deservingly so because I can't remove any of my sin. I can't undo any of it. And I certainly can't even make up for it. And even if I commit myself today that I'm not going to do it anymore I find that I will do it. My flesh is in my will or both that weak. So I am entirely dependent upon God. And that sorrow, that, that deep recognition of my horrible condition and how powerfully it disqualifies me from any claim to heaven, any claim to being able to stand before a holy, holy, holy God um, is what drives repentance. Is when, and godly sorrow comes we are confronted with a message. And so they confront these men with this message. And, and the message of Christ um, is not going to penetrate every heart, no matter how convincing it is presented. And I am amazed at Christians who, are, who don't share the gospel because they don't think they're going to do it right. And we have some groups out there that, that feed that. Um, I remember as a young person... Uh, my youth pastor wanted to make sure that we went through all these evangelism classes. Um, and so we went go through, and he had different programs. And so we went through all these evangelism uh, courses. Uh, so uh, back then it was Evangelism Explosion was one of them. And there were others, and we went through these courses. And, and uh, I remember even in uh, some children's clubs, you know, you have to present it just like this. And uh, here's, and you, I'm sitting there, and as a young man, I'm trying to memorize all this. You know, i got to do this just right. If I mess this up, people are going to hell. You know? And then I come to realize that um, we all have a message. The message is of Christ. It's a very simple, very direct message, and it needs to come from the heart, generated by the Holy Spirit. Um, and it needs to be confined within the parameters of Scripture, and we need to know our Scriptures. And we need to have a confidence going and have a powerful testimony. And we need to just lay the story out there. And the story is pretty direct and simple. And we have complicated it so much that some Christians just throw it around. Oh, I'm afraid to do it. I'm just going to bring them to you, Pastor. We're sure that if we don't do it right, people won't believe. But the fact is, even if you do it Right. Even if you take them to some powerful, well-known evangelist who is on their crusades, doesn't mean they're going to turn from their sin to Christ. They didn't turn when Peter preached. They didn't turn when Jesus preached. 
They didn't turn when John the Baptist preached. They didn't turn when Paul and Barnabas preached. There will always be those who will reject the message of Christ, and they may very well be in the majority. Let me just tell you, they are. They are in the majority. As evidenced here in what happened again, uh, similarly to what happened in Antioch, is going to happen in Iconium. It says in verse 2, While a great multitude believed, but the unbelieving Jews. So we have um, certainly the, the Gentiles, there's many that wouldn't have been at the synagogue, they wouldn't have heard. It was those interested in the God of Israel, the, this, this creator God, this Jehovah, that uh, would have come and been listening and heard the gospel from, from Paul and Barnabas in that setting. But there was the Jews. So we're talking about those that were inside the synagogue who rejected it. And they do something that makes you kind of scratch your head, but then you hit, think back historically and go, oh yeah, that's a mold that, that, they have, that they have fit in before. We're familiar with why they would do this. The Jews do something pretty incredible, and that is they go to another group of people that they have a very low esteem of, that they really want to stay separate away from. In fact, they live away from them. They often put themselves in enclaves. Uh, they, are, they have instructions in their law to uh, not uh, mingle with them. And that is uh, the Gentiles. And here are the Jews, who their term for Gentiles is dogs. They call them dogs. That's what they think of them. Now, when confronted, their, their rejection of Christ is so deep-seated that they have gone to the Gentiles. Now they're going to go to them. These that they don't want to have too much dealings with, they won't sit down and eat together, uh, things like that. They're going to go to them, and they are going to stir them up. And that word uh, in, in, in the New King James says they poison their minds. Um, and and that, that's a little more specific than really the Greek is there. It, it's really that they... they, they, they built up or they, they, they poured bitterness into them. They embittered their hearts against them, their, their inner being. In other words, they, they went to the Gentiles and they, and they poured into them things that would, that would, and most of it were lies, that would embitter the Gentiles against this message. Now, that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Until you remember back in the Gospels. Do we remember what the Jews did to get the Romans to crucify our Lord? What did they go do? This man claims to be the king. He's against Caesar. He's trying to supplant Caesar. You remember that? They're going to the Gentiles. They won't even go into the courtroom because it's the Holy Week. And so they're calling out there and they're saying, no, 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 he's no, no, we're friends of Caesar. Are they friends of Caesar? Absolutely not. They lied. Why? Because they wanted to embitter, they wanted to poison, is the word here in New King James, the mind of the leadership of the Romans in Jerusalem that they would take action against their enemy, Jesus Christ. And so they go to them and they, and they present all this stuff and, and say, oh, we're the servants of Caesar and we're here to disclose this, this rebellious faction. Well, was Jesus raising a rebellion against the Romans? No. 
ones who were threatened wasn't the Roman Empire. The ones who were threatened was the Jewish religious leaders. So we find that this is a pattern that we saw way back then in Christ's trial where they come to the Gentiles, they lay this, these ideas and they're into their uh, conversation that somehow this is going to be... And by the way, this is going to come out later on. You're going to see the Gentiles doing this to each other as well when we get uh, to Ephesus where we're going, to, we're going to see a group of people who are losing their livelihood. The silversmiths. Nobody's buying our stuff anymore. Boy, there's nothing more divisive than a message that injures the economy, huh? Don't mess with the economy, whatever you do. If you mess with anything in our lives, just don't mess with the economy. Don't threaten my job. And so what do they do? They stir them up and they say, you know, these people are, are you know, taking us away from our worship of Diana, and, and which of course they were, and they stir up the multitudes into a, a frenzied mob that really don't, all of them, all, not all of them even know why they're there. Just a frenzied mob. Yeah, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. They run into the, into, uh, to, to, to chant that together. And we almost see the same uh, action here as the Jews come in they're willing to lie. They're willing to, to violate their own prejudices because they hate Christ more than they hate the Gentiles. That's how adamant they are in their rejection of Him. They're willing to build bridges to those that they have every prejudice against that they might raise up antagonism against the work of God. So how do we respond? Verse 3. Um, it's a great verse, and I really want to spend most of my time here. Uh, so therefore, they stayed there a long time. And the first thing that we find out is that Paul and Barnabas are not runners. Um, that's just not their nature they will, all, they will leave a town when it turns violent. Every time it turns violent, um, they will leave. And that's, by God's word, if they don't want to hear it, and they're to that extent, the community um, violently thrusts you out, that you are to uh, take the dust off your feet and move on. Um, that, that's, they've already done that in Antioch. Um, but here, they are... Um, given an opportunity to minister for an extended period of time. And uh, the likelihood is that they were in Iconium maybe for over a year, that they were there ministering in that region. And so they were there. That, that term long time really is picked up again and how long they stayed at Antioch. Um, and we know that they were there for over a year. And so as they get done with their journey. And so they're there. And they're not going to just run because they're not going to create the division. Oh, we have some opposition and then turn tail and head out. Um, rather, as long as they have an opportunity, they're going to stay. And so they're going to stay there a long time. They're going to try to invest very strongly in, the, in this body of believers. And we find that they spoke boldly in the Lord. And so um, they were committed, uh, even though they were on a missionary journey, we often think of them being very itinerant, 
Um, that wasn't necessarily their plan of action. The itinerant nature of their journey was built upon the violent rejection of Jesus Christ. As soon as there was violence, they would move on. They didn't want to incite violence. Uh, they didn't want to stir it up. They didn't want to invoke it, uh, lest it fall on their brethren as well. And so as soon as there's a violent rejection, they're gone. It's going to be true in Iconium. It's going to be true in uh, Lystra as well. Uh, as soon as we encounter some violent rejection, I mean, when they stone you to death, that's pretty violent. They, they pretty much don't want to hear it anymore. So they're going to stay there, though, along. They're committed to the long term as long as um, there is an opportunity to, to share Christ um, in a nonviolent in, environment. And they're going to speak boldly. They're not going to compromise the message. We often think of speaking boldly as speaking loudly or strongly, but it really uh, envelops more of the idea that they were unafraid to, to challenge and to speak the fullness of the gospel. They didn't compromise it. They didn't, they didn't muddy the waters, but rather they kept, kept a clear, concise, direct message that just never wavered. And that is boldly speaking in the Lord. It doesn't mean that, that they, they didn't change that with the audience uh, in terms of, of how to uh, uh, address them. We're going to see that. But, but they still always kept focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even when you get to Mars Hill, it's still going to boil down to we have a resurrected Savior, one who has conquered sin, conquered death. That's who we serve. That's who we believe and follow after. And so the message was boldly declared. And God, the Lord, is now described His part. That was their part. They stayed as long as there was no violence. They spoke boldly in the Lord. They had a clear, powerful message that they did not waver from. And then the Lord was bearing witness to the word of His grace. So Paul and Barnabas were doing their part, and the brethren, I have to believe, for this extended period of time. And many were coming to Christ, and, and uh, God comes along and He says, I'm going to bear witness of my grace. There's going to be evidence. It's not just going to be the word of these two men, but there's going to be evidence. And we, we look at miracles and signs and wonders, and certainly that's listed here, that they're granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And, and certainly that was a, a very important facet of the apostolic age. But there's more than that involved in this bearing witness to the word of His grace. Uh, the word of His grace is the gospel message. Well, what is the evidence? What is the witness it is the work of God in people's lives. And I would contend today that the evidence, the witness of God's grace is when He takes hold of a life and transforms it. And the world can't talk against that. They have nothing to say when they see that happen. And it doesn't matter if you were raised in church all your life. It doesn't matter any of that. Um, 
if you come to know Christ as a 12-year-old or a, or a 22-year-old or a 52-year-old, doesn't matter how religious you've been, the world knows when you have radically been transformed by the grace of God. They'll know it. It will show in your life. It'll show in your faith. It'll show in your reactions. It will show in your work ethic. It will show in every facet of who you are and how you engage people the grace of God. And as we talked last week, the powerful evidence is that no matter the circumstances, there's still joy. I'm still filled with joy. That is the evidence, the witness that God's grace is upon me. Remember what grace is. Grace is... I have been given something I didn't deserve and I could not earn. Well, what's the evidence of His grace? What is the, what is the witness of, that God would use of His grace? Certainly, there were signs and wonders. It was done by their hands in people's lives, but we're going to see that that evidence is really for the Jews. And once we leave that, that realm, we really move more and more away from it. Even Paul is going to have some problems with it when he gets to the next town. Um, it's going to cause some confusion instead of clarifying the message. But we here today have an opportunity to bear witness of His grace. What have you received from God that you did not deserve and could never earn? And I think we don't Meditate on that long enough on a daily basis to get up and reflect on the fact that I have been given a wonderful gift of God's grace. I've been given so much that I don't deserve and could never earn by God. And let God bear witness of that by the transformance of your life into Christ into the image of Christ. Well, is that going to resolve the issues? You've got two men committed to long-term ministry. You've got them speaking clearly, concisely, and directly of the message. You've got God uh, coming in and, and bearing witness to the word of His grace. You have all this going on. He says, certainly that's going to win over the enemies, right? Wrong. Here's what it's going to do. It's going to keep deepening that line. It's going to keep deepening that chasm. It's going to make it more and more evident that this is different than that. And it will make it more and more important that people choose one or the other. There is no... When this happens, when this verse occurs... By the people of God, there is no neutral zone. There is no gray area. There is, there, there is nothing like that. The longer we spend in ministry in a community, the more boldly we speak the word of God, the more evidence of his grace that is in our lives, in our ministry, the stronger comes that break that you must choose one or the other. Um, it, and there, there is no gray. It's either you're in the light or you're in the dark. Period. There is no twilight zone. It just doesn't exist. When we do ministry right, 
When we are willing to invest ourselves for the long haul, faithfulness is the word. When you hear ministry for a long time, insert the word faithfulness. Reliable. We've been working at the skate park for, oh, how many years have we been there? Jeremy, David, how long have we been there? Five years? Five years. Every Saturday, almost. few exceptions. They're down at the skate park. Five years. But that's what it takes. And, and they're at the point now that, that they belong there in the view of the people at the skate park. Long-term ministry. Proclaim the, the message boldly. Let, the, let God evidence His grace in your life. And that line will become so sharp, so bright, so obvious that there are those who believe and there are those who don't. And this muddy water of Christians who don't live like Christians and unbelievers who are trying to be religious and uh, are gone. They're the ones that are muddying the issue. And God calls us to something very different than that. That rather than, than blurring the line between faith and unbelief, we should be sharpening it so that it is very obvious that here's where one ends and here's where the other begins. How? You stay. You invest yourself in ministry. You stay faithful. You speak boldly, clearly, directly, without compromise, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you allow Him to bear witness of His grace in your life. But recognize that Sharpening that line between those of faith and those not of faith and getting rid of this muddy gray area in the middle um, it does not bring all of these people to Christ. But rather, it makes it very evident that their hearts are hardened against that message. And the sharper that line became, the deeper that, that line in the concrete got notched, the more evident the distinction that as these people in Iconium, as they lived more and more like Christians for longer and longer period, months went by, and, and, and a year, and they're living more and more and more differently than everyone else, it was really evident who the Christians were. And it should always be that way. And shame on the American church that it's not. We have blurred a line that we must have well-defined or we'll lose the world. So we have people walking around thinking they're Christians because they've said a prayer once. Thinking they're Christians because they were raised in church. Thinking they're going to heaven um, because they're in America. We have blurred the line so badly because we have compromised the message, because we are unfaithful to our Lord, and that we don't show any evidence of His grace in our lives.
The world is discontent. The church is discontent. The world's immoral. The church is immoral. The world lies and steals. The church lies and steals. The world is violent. Church has been violent. We have so blurred this that no wonder the world wanders around and say there's no difference. I've been talking to teens about be different. Be different. If you're just like them, you talk like them, you look like them, you act like them, you listen to what they listen to, you watch what they watch, um, then guess what? You've got nothing different to offer them. And here, the line must be sharpened. It must be well-defined. And it is up to the church to define that line. I think sometimes the world has a better concept of that line than we do. So the line is struck, and it's struck strong, and it's struck deep, and it's struck clear. In verse 4, the multitude was divided, part side of the Jews, part side of the apostles. And verse 5, then it finally, after a long time, it finally at some point came to a violence. Not by the Christian community, but by the world. When they saw the sharpening of the line, they saw this evidence, and they saw that, that they have what we don't have, and instead of, of, of submitting themselves and having godly sorrow in the heart that led them to repentance, they hardened their heart, and they stood against it, and they trusted in their religion, and they trusted in their law, and they trusted in their gods, and they trusted in themselves. And they stiffened their back, even as they stiffened their heart against God, they picked up stones. They picked up weapons to confront a people whose only crime was to say, without Christ, you have no hope. So violent intent was made. Rulers, and we can imagine what they said. These people are going to undermine Caesar. They're going to take people into atheism, that was the big accusation against the church, is that we were atheists. Isn't that great? And I say, we were atheists? Yes, that was the accusation in the first century against the church. You know why you're atheists? Because you don't go worship all the gods. You don't go worship Zeus, you don't go worship Apollos, you don't go worship Diana, you don't go worship all these gods. Therefore, you don't believe in the gods, you must be atheists. That was the accusation. You can imagine the Jews stirring it up and the Gentiles. Boy, the attendance at the, at the temples really dropped off. The temple prostitutes don't have enough business, enough clients. Our city is being transformed. In modern ages, we have seen that recorded for us um, in some of the revivals that occurred um, uh, one of the interesting stories is where barbershop quartets came from. How many of you know what a barbershop quartet is? Four guys singing at the barbershop because they don't have anywhere else to go. No. You know where they came from? A revival. You know who they were? Cops. Because they had no business. Crime went so low they didn't need them. So they hung out at the barbershop and started singing. Yeah, that kind of transforming power of the grace of God. That if 
our faith really penetrated this city. And all of our churches clearly set that line. And the gospel really was going out with power. That we would not have a problem of not enough police in this city. We would have the other problem. How do we get rid of them? We don't need them anymore. So we've muddied the waters. And here, the, violent, the line has been struck. The hearts, it's been evident. And now, these are turning. And they're going to turn to violence because they can't <laughs> convince anyone on this side. Once you're in the light, what is, how, how can the darkness attract you once you're in the light? There's nothing to attract you. I don't get Christians who are so attracted to the darkness of sin again. Why well, go back there? And yet it happens time and time again. It's like you're in the warmth of the day. Why well, go into the ugly night? And they're over here in the light. How do you convince them? So they couldn't argue with them. They couldn't, they couldn't deny the miracles. They couldn't deny the evidence in their lives. They couldn't deny that those people are just happy. <laughs> they couldn't deny that. So what are you left with? You're left with one thing, and that's violence. If you want to know why Muslims are violent, well, look at what they don't have. They have a God that they're afraid of. That's the whole premise. Their idea of heaven is a place where Allah isn't. That's heaven for a Muslim. It's easy to work up a mob when you sit there and, boy, they have stuff we don't have. And we can't resist their argument. We can't, we, we, we can't resist what God's doing in their life. And so what are we left with? Well, violence. And so they violently made attempts to grab Paul and Barnabas, the leadership of this young church. And so they wanted to abuse them and stone them, but they became aware of the plot beforehand and they fled. And they didn't stop preaching, they preached the gospel there as well. This is our response. You'll say, well, what do you do when the world turns violent against you? Well, you run away. You don't fight back. You don't get even. This is not our way. This is not the way of Christ. It is not the Christian response to violence. The Christian response to violence is to run. To leave them. If they want that, we'll give it to them. We saw that in Jerusalem that when the guy that was perpetrating the violence was named Saul, what did the Christians do? They just scattered. This is what you need to do in violent circumstances. And when, when we see Syrian government toppling and we find out that the rebels that our country supports are slaughtering Christians all over that nation, that that is their number one objective when they take a city. The rebels that your government supports when they take a city, their number one goal is to slaughter every Christian in it that was allowed to be there by this cruel Syrian regime. They were allowed to live and worship in that country until the rebels America supports over, are seeking to overturn the regime. And that's the same thing that happened in Iraq. 
Same thing in Afghanistan. Same thing in Egypt. Same thing in Libya. We keep overturning these horrible regimes. Why? In the midst of that, so that these Sharia Muslims can hunt down Christians and slaughter them. And Christians are running. They're not fighting back. It is not their calling to fight back. Our calling, like Paul and Barnabas demonstrate time and time again, is if they don't want the message that bad, then we'll move on. We'll move on. And judgment is on their own head because they have heard the message, they have seen the line, and they have chosen that side of darkness. But we're going to go on. We're going to preach to the next place, and the next place, and the next. Sometimes they're going to avoid the violence. Sometimes they're not. And we come to Lystra, and we see that they didn't hear about it soon enough. Verse 19, it says the Jews from Antioch and Iconium found where Paul and Barnabas went for ministry, followed them there, did the same poisoning of the mind, stirred up the same mob that just a little while earlier was ready to recognize these two men as gods, now are ready to have them murdered. And they allowed themselves to be persuaded, turned into a mob, verse 19. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Still doesn't stop Paul. He's going to keep preaching, because this is the only message that is of any significant value for mankind. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And we need to... Put that line out there before people. And pray that they would respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction of their sin, that they would have godly sorrow over it, and that they would come to repentance. Not just pray a sinner's prayer, but genuinely turn their life over to God and be transformed into a new person that it might be evident to everyone they meet that something wondrous has happened to this person. And I want whatever they got because they are a whole different joy than I've ever known. Our responsibility is to be faithful. Our responsibility is to draw a clear, precise, powerful line. To divide a town, to divide a family, divide a community. So it is clearly evident these are the followers of Christ, these are not. This is one of the things we have striven as a church to do. And when we have individuals come in that want to muddy that clear distinction, that want to draw the line crooked, that want to have this wide gray area, we say, no, oh, please stop. Or don't be count of our number. For we must have this line, or we are doing a disservice to the gospel, and we're doing a disservice to the world 
and we're doing a disservice to religious people who are on their way to hell. The line must be clear, bold, evident. And it can only be that way if we live it and preach it faithfully all our days. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Paul and Barnabas' willingness to serve you. And Lord, we pray that we might respond. We see the distinction between believers and unbelievers. But Lord, sometimes it's hard because we see too many in the church living like the world and we see too many in the world trying to pretend to be the church. Lord, help us here. That we might be light with no darkness at all. And how we live, how we speak, the decisions we make, how we work, how we relate one to another and to the world. There can be no confusion, no doubt, no dispute about whose we are and what we are and whose they are and what they are. Lord, we pray for those who have not seen that radical distinction in anyone in their life. We pray that if we encounter them this week, that we might show them the proof of your grace. That we might be faithful in it. And that we might speak boldly of the Lord who brought it into our life. Lord, help us. To win our world for your sake. And that we might win those who claim to be in your church but are not the same message. In Christ Jesus' name.